we're less secular than we think we are, you know. You know, it's just religion is much more pervasive in our deepest emotions than people realize. And all these, you know, Russian soldiers and Ukrainian soldiers, I mean, deep, deep down inside all of them is some set of questions about what life means and what their purpose is sitting in this particular foxhole. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me from Vienna, Austria, we have the former leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, a distinguished professor and academic, Michael Ignatieff. Thanks for joining me. Nice to be here. Michael, before we get into the bulk of your recent book on consolation, uh, tell me, what is uh, one of the big things that you'd be proud of when someone marks you as a Canadian in Europe? Oh, I think uh, we're just a big lucky country. The thing that strikes you everywhere is how many people want to come to Canada, how many people want to emigrate. One of the sure signs you're a popular country is just the number of people who want to join our country. And you feel that very strongly in Europe and you feel it everywhere I go. Um, we're a blessed destination. And I'm proud of that because it's not just that we're rich and got wonderful natural resources. We've kind of made this place a home for people from all over the planet. And, and that's that's kind of amazing. I mean, I sometimes wonder how we hold it all together, but we seem to. Hmm. Oh, well put. Well, you do take a, a wide swath of ideologies and ways of culture and, and religion and society as you address the question of consolation in your recent book. And you even use that word in, in your response to that question, uh, a blessed people very well versed in religious texts. And before you decided to write this book, it, it came out of the invitation that you had to speak on some texts from the Psalms. Why would you have been chosen for something like that as someone who's not Jewish, Christian, or someone with that kind of bent? I have no idea, to tell you the truth. I, I was invited to um, uh, speak on justice and politics in the Psalms. So that gives you the cue. I think they thought, you know, an ex-politician. I don't think anybody knew anything about my religious, uh, you know, side. So I went to this wonderful weekend uh, where all the Psalms were performed in a big hall in a place in Holland. And I listened to four great choirs sing these beautiful settings of the Psalms. And it had a huge effect. I mean, people were in tears. People were People were really you know, deeply moved by it. And I think that started me on the project. I, I began asking the, the question, which is, how does someone like me, who's always had a bit of a quarrel with, with God and religion, find himself nonetheless so moved by great religious texts from the past? And that started me off on this journey. And that's why the early chapter of the book is about the Psalms and, and why there's such and why they've been a consolation to people with faith and without faith for 2,000 years. You call Psalm 23 the most consoling words ever written. As someone who doesn't uh, believe in a, higher, in a higher power of God for those words, how can you uh, make that claim? Well, it's complicated, I, I, and I'm not sure I've even got the answer after years of thinking about it. I think... First of all, these are just beautiful words. I mean, they've been recited for 2,000 years, so they're part of everybody's tradition. And their beauty makes the question of whether you believe every word in them sort of irrelevant. 
I do think that's important. That is, you can be moved by them whether or not you fully have a, a, a Christian or Jewish um, faith. I think that the biggest surprise to me about the Psalms was the ways in which I began to see they understand human beings so well. They understand what it is to be lonely, and they also understand what it is to be exalted. They understand what it is to have faith, and it, they understand what it is to wonder where God is in the world. And I think it's that sense of the deep connection we have with these people, um, who, whoever wrote the Psalms, across time. And that, it seems to me, I, I tried to say, is what's consoling, this linkage between the present and the deep past that the, the Psalms help us to understand. I've heard it put before that if you were to hold up a mirror to your life, there would not be an emotion that is not expressed in the Psalms for what you experience. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and the, you know, I'm very struck by their image of loneliness, uh, their, their images of despair, their images of desolation. It, it's, it is simply no accident that people in lonely hotel rooms reach for that Gideon Bible, you know, and, uh, you know, because it, it's very comforting to feel that someone else knows what it's like to feel lonely and abandoned, and also what it's like to, to feel that somebody's looking after you. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Psalms, no doubt about it. Uh, you do a, an excellent job defining consolation and, and looking at it from different angles in this book. Uh, I was especially intrigued in your chapter on the Psalms uh, when you made the connection between consolation and repentance, uh, deriving from the same Hebrew word. And I thought that was so uh, helpful to think about in times of great despair as to also remember that you need to be able to to move forward from that place. Could you elaborate on what you mean by that? Yeah, I, uh, consolation is really how we face loss, failure, um, the death of loved ones, the death of our own ambitions and hopes, and how we regain a sense that life is worth living and how we regain hope. Some of that may include repentance. You think, I really screwed that up. I really disappointed somebody. I really let someone down. It's a reckoning with the truth of what you've done. So you seek repentance either from your own conscience or you seek repentance from someone you've harmed or you seek, you, seek, uh, you, you confess your sins as people do in many religious faiths. And then you feel consoled by something complicated, which is that you've recognized that you did wrong. But once you've done it, you feel free of it. You feel a little freer of the weight of, of that. And, and, uh, and that then gives you the sense that you're not perfect, but you can start again. And that, so repentance is very much connected to renewal, and renewal is very much connected to hope. How does the life of the Apostle Paul inspire you in that way? Because you did touch on him uh, being so honest to confess his struggle between the past and the present. Yeah, I found Paul absolutely fascinating. I mean, he's almost single-handedly created the, the Christian church. He's, what I find uh, so 
uh, moving about him is is how explicit and honest he is about his struggles. And this is a man who starts his life persecuting Christians, has a has a visitation from God, if that's what you believe, or he has a complete psychic collapse when he suddenly realizes that he's persecuting people who believe in the imminent arrival of a Messiah, and he he believes that because he's of the Jewish faith, he believes him. The Messiah is prophesied, and he suddenly realizes maybe this is the Messiah, and I've been doing wrong. And so I think everybody's moved by the story of Paul, light on the road to Damascus, and the discovery that he's wronged, and it it makes it the pivot on which his whole life changes. But that's not the only part of Paul. You know, this is a man who faces imprisonment. He's put in chains, he's thrown out of synagogues, he's uh, tormented. Um, it's a really tough life. And above all, he's dealing with young, early Christian communities who he has to keep together. It's an extraordinary political achievement. He manages to keep these little communities going with these epistles. Uh, but there's a lot of backsliding. There are people who, you know, he tells them, look, the Messiah is just about to come, folks, hang on, and then the Messiah doesn't come. And so they're sitting there thinking, well, do we really believe this stuff? And so he has to bolster their sagging faith. And I think out of this, he begins to create a Christian doctrine that is centrally concerned with consolation because the promise of paradise, the promise of salvation, the promise of the Messiah's arrival keeps getting deferred. And so you have to create a faith that'll hold people up while they're waiting for the for the afterlife or they're waiting for the end of time or they're waiting for the things that the religion promises. And he's very alive to that and, and to the difficulty of holding people together. And I try to argue in the, um, you know, the incredible epistle in Corinthians about love that, one of the things he comes to understand uh, is that the surest sign you'll ever have of what the love of God is like is the love of human beings in the here and now. And he, his that wonderful evocation of love is, is very deeply felt and is connected, in my view, for one of the things that I thought was so wonderful about the epistles is... Uh, his constant shout-outs, as we would say it now, to the people he worked with, urging them to... So the the epistles are full of these real Christian people that he worked with, and I think he came to love them, and I think he understood that, you know, prophecies might fail, knowledge might fail, Mm -hmm. everything might fail, but the love of these people kept him going and was deeply consoling. I I think that there are some of the most beautiful words in the in the Bible, and I think they are the product of deep human experience, and and so they'll live forever. Really moved by his life. Would you say that as far as yourself trying to live in a way that you can give and receive consolation, that Paul would be chief among those that you get inspiration from in, in doing that and trying to embody that love? I do think the, the verses on love in, in Corinthians are a faultless, and they're also a guide to what love is. You know, love is 
Love is kind, you know, love, love doesn't keep score. Love, you know, forgives, love, you know, I mean, all these things. Um, it's one of the greatest, almost analyses of what, of, of what uh, love is. And a sense that of all the experiences we have, they're the, it is the most consoling experience. We have the most important one. And the, the one thing you do not want to say at the end of your life is you haven't loved someone or haven't been loved. I mean, that's the most desolate possible end to a life. And, and, and I think Paul understands that. And uh, so it's a, I think it's been, a cons- it's been an inspiration to me and it's been an inspiration to, to everybody. And as I say, secular people who don't necessarily believe everything that Paul's telling them resonate to those lines to this day. Amazing. You draw out some other interesting insights in relation to other people that have lived very courageous lives. And I guess what's really motivating their consolation. So you talk about, you know, soldiers in war and how they were living for the generations that would come, that would have that freedom. That was their hope. And you talk about in the Protestant ethic, which is an example of someone else who doesn't necessarily believe in God as a higher being, but is able to derive uh, richness from texts and and his uh, consolation of hope is is rooted in politics. And then, I mean, you, you touch on a lot of people, but I, I think of, of Marx, totally different perspective. Uh, you say that uh, Marx believed the history of consolation was over because if you could live according to what uh, he doctrinated, you'd be liberated and emancipated and there'd be no need for a consolation. Such a wide swath of these non-religious understandings of, of consolation, which of those or others that I didn't mention w- were especially um, compelling to you to write and, and still to draw on right at this day? Well, I don't think you can write about consolation or think about it unless you start with the religions. I mean, all of our understanding of consolation is essentially religious. From the Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition, this book does not look look at other religious traditions, but they're all absolutely rich in consoling language and understanding. So you can't start thinking about consolation unless you start with religion. Uh, but I think you also have to understand that modern people uh, are the heirs also of a revolt against consolation. Uh, you mentioned Marx. I mean, Marx is famously said the the beginning of all criticism is the criticism of religion. And what he meant by that was you couldn't understand why the world was so unjust and why people put up with un- injustice unless you understood the power that religion had in promising them a better life in the afterlife. And the problem with that from Marx's point of view was that you never got down to fight for justice in this life. You waited for justice in the next life. And this is where the revolt against consolation starts, this sense that uh, religious consolation uh, keeps deferring the struggle to build justice in this world. And um, uh, we are the heirs of that tradition as well. If you look at uh, Sigmund Freud, you know, all the modern psychology and psychoanalysis wants us to think about suffering as an illness from which we can be healed. Um, 
and we can be healed without religious consolation. So the 20th century, you know, has been driven by these ideologies that say, forget about religion and forget about religious consolation that it offers. And I, one of the things I'm trying to say in the book is, forget about it, guys. You can't think about consolation unless you take the religious language seriously. Uh, and the revolt against consolation was based on a utopia that is false. I mean, <laughs> there is no world that we can imagine in which you will not need to be consoled for the death of a loved one. There's no world we can imagine, no matter how just, no matter how fair, no matter how beautiful, no matter how equal, in which there will not be failure, in which there will not be loss, in which there will not be incomprehensible tragedy. I just think that's it doesn't make me fatalist about injustice in this world. It makes me, I'm still as committed to doing whatever I can to stop injustice in this world as many Christian and religious people are. But the utopia that uh, much of 20th century believed in is that we could get beyond consolation, either through therapy or through revolution. It's not going to work. And uh, so... You know, that's one of the things the book's trying to say, and it's trying to say, well, if that's the case, then you better read some St. Paul. You know, you better read uh, the book of Job. You, you, you know, you, you better, don't, don't leave this stuff behind. And it seems crazy to me uh, to let your little difficulties about religious faith stand in the way of reading this stuff for the wisdom that it contains. Because uh, that's a point I keep coming back to. I, 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 I still have my little quarrel with God. He wants us to read this stuff. So let's read this stuff. That That's kind of what I'm saying. If you're at liberty to talk about the, the quarrel that you have with God, if you could sum it up, what would it be? I'm happy to talk about it, but it's not, you know, it, you know when I was 18 and first year of university, I read David Hume's great 18th century philosopher's dialogues concerning natural religion. It's very famous skeptical text that begins to take apart um, Christian doctrine and the belief in miracles and all this kind of stuff. And I was very affected by it. I think uh, I was attracted by its daring. I was attracted by its radicalism, um, you know, but I also lived in a religious family. My, my father was a devout member of the Russian Orthodox Church from childhood to the day he died, and he was buried in the Orthodox Church. Um, so, uh, and my brother, uh, who's still alive, is uh, is a believer. So I've been surrounded by religious faith all my life, and I remember, you know, I've I've read the Bible all my life. So I I, I feel, as I say, I, I don't think my quarrel with this is is very important. You know, I love being in churches. I love, uh, and there there was one moment uh, twenty years ago after nine eleven. Uh, after that, you know, I remember the terrible moment when those planes flew in those buildings. I, I, I was uh, in the states, and I, I found myself in a church. I just sat there. I didn't. I don't think I prayed, but I, I just went to church. I just sat down for a half an hour. The world seemed to be just going crazy. I thought the calmest, quietest place I could find was a church. I was right. There weren't weren't many people in there, but I was there. And my wife was there, and we just sat there because it gave us comfort. I just thought, uh, 
this building is not going to be blown up. It's going to be here. This is a holy place. We want to be there. There we are. Well, thank you so much for, for being vulnerable to share that. And it certainly comes out in the book, your deep respect uh, for uh, religion and, and religious texts and all that it offers us. You know, the, the moment that we're living in right now is, is quite unprecedented with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but I wonder if in some ways it will enable us to have greater empathy uh, because we're pretty far removed from wars in the past for the sake of consolation. Would that be uh, perhaps a read that you would have as well on, on the state of the world today? Well, religion's very central to this conflict. You know, um, uh, the, the Russian side believes there's only one faith. It's basically Russian orthodoxy. It was, it's kind of started in the ninth century when a Kievan, a prince in Kiev accepted the Christian faith from some monks who were traveling out there from Constantinople. And, and so the Russian church starts in Kiev. So Mr. Putin's whole story about why Ukraine doesn't deserve to exist as a separate state starts from a certain idea about religion, which is that there's one faith and therefore there's one territory from, you know, from, you know, the north of Russia right to the Crimea. And the Ukrainians um, have always had a different church, uh, the Uniat Church. Uh, they've also had a Ukrainian, so there's an Orthodox Church in Ukraine, which is separate from the church in Moscow, and there's a Catholic church, a doubly separate. And uh, one of the bitterest parts of the Ukrainian feeling about this war is that the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church in Moscow is completely supporting what Putin is doing, and that creates a tremendous amount of bitterness. So if we want to understand what's going on, we have to look at the history, the religious history here, because it, you know, religion is 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 churns people up. It's the deepest source of people's emotions, and especially when you're burying some boy who's fought for his country, you you bury him in the church of your your faith or the church of of his childhood. So, religion is at the roots of the the bitterness. Uh, it's also at the root of the consolation that people seek to find uh, when they've lost loved ones. Religion's been doing this since the beginning of time. Religion and war are very closely connected. You know, the, uh, very often religion justifies war, uh, and the faith, and religion is also what consoles people for the losses of war. And uh, that seems to be what's going on. I think it reminds you again that. One of the things I'm trying to say in the book is, you know, we're less secular than we think we are. You know, you know, it's just religion is much more pervasive in our deepest emotions than all these, you know, Russian soldiers and Ukrainian soldiers. I mean, deep, deep down inside all of them, sitting in this particular foxhole, firing it at a fellow human being or being fired at by a fellow human being, and people turn to religion for those answers and. So it's, um, I mean, I kind of rephrase what your question was to say, look, this is, these are religious wars, and most wars tend to be religious. And that's 
just one of the difficult facts about religion. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking this time and all the best as the book continues to get more circulated. Appreciate your work and your really honest look at a a heartfelt topic that is so pertinent uh, given uh, this pandemic that we've just come out of and this cyclical condition as you've uh, described so well in our conversation today. Well, thank you. It was good to talk to you. Wow, what a conversation. So much more to Michael Ignatieff. We're going to have to have him back on the show. I'm saying that right now. Show notes, you can read up on him and find out about that recent book on Consolation when you head to davidmanmedia.com. Also, we are coming to an end. This is the final episode of season four. Just like that, we have 80 episodes in the archive. I want to give you some time to go back to any pieces that you've missed over these last couple of years. We will resume the podcast in June. Now, the radio continues, and actually this weekend, some big news, we are going to be live, Culture to Crossroads, in Edmonton and Calgary. So that's really exciting. As far as the podcast goes, let me just push you to keep staying informed, lean into the Christian faith, and get ready for more great conversations coming your way before you know it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.